Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. During the lockdown, academics from the university's law faculty have been getting together online to discuss the legal implications of the New Zealand government's response to COVID-19. This is the sixth part of the series and was recorded on Thursday the 21st of May. Right everyone, welcome back to what's now edition six of the legal lowdown on the lockdown. We're moving to a world where there is no lockdown, but there's still quite a bit of legal maneuverings around the response to COVID-19. So I'm here with my colleagues, just to introduce myself, I'm Jeff McClay, Professor of Law at Victoria University of Wellington. It's been my privilege to be chairing these sessions during stage four and stage three, and now in stage two or level two of the lockdown. And I'm with my colleagues who have been with us all along Nessa Lynch, Eddie Clark, and Dean Knight, who are all academics colleagues of mine at Victoria University of Wellington's Law School. What we're going to do today is hopefully a bit of a shorter um, legal lowdown, focusing on just a few points that have arisen in the last week or so. We do hope to come back for a seventh and final episode next week, where we'll talk perhaps a bit more reflectively on the whole legal response to the coronavirus and to COVID-19, and what lessons we might at that stage be taking from what we've done or what we haven't done in terms of the law over the last couple of months. But this week is more of an update in terms of what we've been doing. And what we're going to do is just start with Nessa because we haven't been, Nessa's been at the end of our presentation, which is really unfortunate because actually where the rubber hits the road in the rule of law is actually when we actually enforce things and actually prosecute people. And Nessa with other colleagues, notably Yvette Tinsley, has been looking at how courts are actually running under the COVID environment. In particular, we've now got new protocols. The courts and the Chief Justice and the Chief, the Heads of Bench have been very active in terms of articulating what will happen at the various levels, and they've got a new lot of protocols for Level 2. So, Nessa, do you want to tell us what those protocols are and how they're different from what's gone before and perhaps how they're different from what we normally do? Yeah, kia ora Jeff and and audience. Um, So this has been a theme we've talked about throughout. Um, So obviously there's been different protocols ranging from the very restrictive activity under level four um, to the courts opening up more under level three. So under level two, we're seeing the machinery of the criminal justice system crank back into operation, but obviously due to the social distancing, physical distancing that we're all living under, um, there are still many restrictions, um, meaning that there is going to be quite a backlog. So we explored um, the issue of the jury trials, which are on hold for um, many months to come. Um, But it means that the business of of justice is quite slow at the moment. Um, So AVL, the audiovisual links, will continue to be used um, for many defendants and offenders appearing for a sentence. And we've discussed in previous weeks um, some of the human rights issues that may arise there. So Um, Obviously, one has the right to be present um, at one's own trial and present a defence. So that doesn't mean that remote participation is ruled out, um, but there may be many issues in terms of being able to follow proceedings um, and also issues in terms of assessing the person's demeanour. As we all know from this word of Zoom meetings and Microsoft Teams meetings, you don't have that same in-person assessment that you can make as usual. 
So the restrictions on the courts um, that are in operation also mean that you don't have the same facility for supporters um, to attend. And so some of the advancements that we've made um, in recent years have been around the provision of cultural reports or um, more ad hoc cultural reports, which are essentially um, supporters. So um, family fano and speaking up from the back of the court for the person. And so the protocols that we have at the moment require that family members um, approach court security either by email or on the day um, to, to receive permission to, to enter. And so Yvette and I have a piece out in newsroom today, which um, makes the point that that can be quite exclusive and people need to uh, be able to know those procedures and, and be able to take days off work, et cetera, to attend court. Um, so we've also seen obviously many of the, the out of court um, processes such as family group conferences, restorative conferences, even uh, psychological and psychiatric assessments have been affected. So there will be a, a, a knock on effect. But I suppose something that we may pick up in a bit more detail next week is around um, this conversation we've all been having in ways of working and what parts of this pandemic response do we want to keep? and what parts um, do we not want to keep? Um, it's certainly a conversation we've been having in relation to teaching. There are many um, innovations we've, we've tested over the last couple of weeks that we'll be taking into the future, but there are other things, um, notably in-person teaching, that we, we can't wait to get back to. So I think there's a similar process um, in court. There are some meetings that definitely could have been an email or um, a Zoom or a phone conference, but we do not want to lose those aspects of our justice system that are best done in person. There's also some, some big lessons around resiliency and resourcing of courts. Um, even after this pandemic, we're a little shaky island at the bottom of the world. There are going to be other emergencies, Wellington, probably an earthquake at some stage. So there are lessons around having those procedures uh, technologically and spatially in place so that we're ready if there is another crisis, but we don't want um, AVL and remote participation to become commonplace. So um, I think in terms of your, your invitation to discuss those broader issues, that's something that we, we will be considering in the medium to long term. You know, and I think certainly from our own professional ex experience at the university that while we've all enjoyed some aspects of digital interaction with our students, it's nowhere near what we would expect now just our personal experience has probably been that what we're really missing is that thing you get from face to face you find out what's really going on and I suppose that's going to be interesting to see what the courts come up with in the future in terms of how they mitigate those risks I know that people defendants often want to be in front of physically in front of a judge because they want to be seen they want their relatives with them they want their supporters with them and it's just not clear and I think the really good thing that you and Yvette have been making clear is that we just shouldn't let a crisis change what we've been doing anyway, what we're trying to do better anyways, and that's involve people's community and we shouldn't let this distract from that. Just in terms of this, we talked a lot of last time about the search powers in, in the Act, and we probably won't come back to those till next time, but one of the really interesting things we were complaining a little bit about that politicians often don't focus enough on search powers or coercive um, powers of the police. But there was another example, which is, bang smack in your research area this last week. So we just thought it would be appropriate if you just outline about the controversy over facial recognition and the police's use of it. Um, it's not a COVID thing so much, but it's definitely bang smack in what you've been working on in the last year. 
Yeah, thanks, Jess. So I suppose just to, to, to lead in on some of the, I think, um, ba basis of this, that how it is a bit related to COVID is we've talked so much in the past weeks about um, compliance and I suppose what restrictions on their freedoms that citizens um, will accept in the face of a, a fearful and dangerous situation like COVID. Um, so for those of us who are involved in, in research around strict state surveillance, these past months have just been fascinating in terms of um, how or, or whether the social license relating to surveillance has changed. And um, so, for instance, Eddie and I had a coffee yesterday. We probably needed to sign in about three or four times um, just to have a cup of coffee and enter another building. That would probably have been unthinkable a couple of weeks ago, but we seem to be willing, relatively willing to accept that. And so something that we might pick up on next week is obviously this COVID tracing app. So we've seen that there's really been some, some real changes around people's acceptance of surveillance um, and recording, which wouldn't have been there more recently. And so as you say, facial recognition landed back. Um, I've been involved in a, a large research project with some Victoria colleagues and some international colleagues. Um, like other research projects, it's been on a bit of a hiatus in past weeks while we concentrate on other things. But um, essentially what happened was it was found out uh, by led by Radio New Zealand and um, that the police earlier in the year had been testing a quite controversial facial recognition system called Clearview. And um, so Clearview is an American based um, system. So it essentially scrapes public um, databases such as your public Facebook profile. And then it sells that as a system where you can run suspect images through that. So it's been incredibly controversial in the United States. So many, many issues are, are um, been thrown up by this OIA. For instance, the police unit that was involved apparently did not run this by their own superiors. Um, they did not follow the usual process for a test like this, which would be a privacy impact assessment process and uh, consultation with the privacy commissioner. Um, so I think um, uh, selfishly, it's really nicely demonstrated the importance of our research because we are at the moment looking at um, what are the proper legal and ethical uh, perimeters for the use of facial recognition, because it does fall between a number of stools. We have a lot of legislation in relation to things like fingerprints, DNA, and um, other uh, personal details, but the collection of face facial images, particularly in public, um, is really a bit of a, a wild west at the moment, and this has clearly demonstrated that. So it was really good to see that even in the middle of a pandemic, um, there was political. So um, our prime minister expressed, I think, that she would have liked to have line of sight um, on this particular test, which might raise some other uh, separation of powers issues. Um, but good to see that there was political and public concern about this. And um, certainly watch this space for our report on this later in the year. So did you have any sense why the police who were involved in the trial didn't think it needed to be put up the line? Because like, I know very little about facial recognition, except that I had heard the um, podcast criticism of this in the New York Times detail, which if anybody's listened to that um, podcast, it does raise some very serious doubts about some of the people who are, who are running Clear, um, Clearview. And so I just wonder whether, is it just one of those things where the right hand was not talking to the left hand or the right side of the brain was not talking to the left hand side of the brain? Um, yes, uh, so I actually got a copy of the Official Information Act um, request from um, Mackenzie Smith, the uh, Radio New Zealand journalist who's been involved in this. So that shows the email train. So um, it just appears as if they didn't really 
think about it. They appear to have identified Clearview from that same New York Times article um, that the podcast was critiquing and, and just thought that they might do a test of it. So again, I think it demonstrates that idea that um, there isn't really a legislative framework that deals with this particular technology, um, which is one of the things that we've been interested in, whereas there's very strict rules around um, other biographical and personal details. And like, I, I think we would definitely say that facial recognition is a very useful technology. Anytime you go through a smart gate or um, apply for a new passport, you're using that and that's quite legitimate. But this idea of the public search, um, either from CCTV enabled um, cameras or these public search um, functions, um, I think is quite a concerning use. And I think the public would be concerned about that. Um, so as just to be clear, there was, there was nothing illegal about what the police were doing. It wasn't what we'd normally say in search and surveillance law, we often think of difference between trespassory searches, things where you're infringing on people's common law rights and we need warrants for those and everything else. The police obviously do lots of investigation which doesn't need warrants and that's often perfectly appropriate. Now they can read the newspaper, they can Google people and that's basically fine-ish. When does it cross the line? I think that's one of the great difficulties always in trying to formulate when it crosses the line from just the police doing what the rest of us can do. And we can all basically, if we wanted to, cyberstalk people to find out who they are or what they are. And we can all use various Google image programs. When does it, just very briefly, when does it cross line as something we need to be worried about? Yeah, I think this is one of the great um, questions that we have to consider in our research. So is there a, a social license in New Zealand? Do people think it's appropriate um, that, for instance, there could be a, a facial recognition CCTV camera on Lambton Key? Um, that can take your image and put it through one of these databases. So I don't think we've got a firm view on that yet. And that's certainly something, my point about the social license possibly changing over the last couple of months is something that we really need to feed into our research now. And what are, and I think that's our, our real goal is what are the legitimate perimeters um, of the use of this technology? But I think what's definite is that the public would expect that if the police are going to do a trial of something like this, that at least our usual procedures of getting a privacy assessment and involving um, our privacy commissioner are followed. Yeah, because that's going to be the interesting thing to see for the next couple of months. So already, listening to the radio this morning, the bar owners who are opening up tonight were talking about using temperature guns to determine the temperature of everybody coming in. And I think three or four months ago, we would have thought this is basically crazy and that people would just not consent to this. But this seems to be almost de rigueur now. The, the example of a good host is actually to have a, a temperature gun where you can figure out the body temperature of the people who are coming into your, into your um, premises. So it's just going to be interesting to see how far that's going to go to what we accept generally about state intrusion. But they're opening today, Dean, because we're now in stage two and these are the bars have had a bit of a delay. But Dean's been doing some thinking, really trying to get a bit of a a one or two word slogan, because I think we're already uh, missing the phrase bubble. My local cafe is still using bubble because it's such a nice way of expressing a, a thought. And we really had a problem trying to figure out a way of expressing the thought under level two. And Dean's been, been thinking about that. The prime obligation is to avoid intermingling, but that just sounds very strange. I wished my students happy intermingling last Friday when I closed off my, my interview, and I'm not sure that was quite the correct phrase but Dean's been trying to think how we might summarize this stage two and maybe the stage one when we're not so much concerned about bubbles but concerned about something else. 
Yeah, we, we spent, sweat the big issues here, the lexicon, because, you know, as you say, lockdown's a bit stale, but is it loose disassociation? Is it careful commingling? Is it managed gatherings? I'm not sure, and, you know, I welcome um, people to tweet ideas on that front. It's clear it's it's towards business as usual, but not business as usual. So a next normal, and you may notice that I've escaped the uh, my cottage on the hill, and that's because, you know, neighbours on one side had landscapers this morning and neighbours on the other side had builders. Um, and I'm back in it, um, old government buildings only to find that it's freezing because there's a broken boiler and there is a water blast uh, going on outside my room. But um, I think the striking thing about level, uh, level two, and the PM made it clear in her presser earlier this week, is that it's going to be a continuum of regulation. I myself prefer the rolling mall, I feel it was appropriated by the finance minister in relation to the budget, but it's the idea that under level two, there'll be an evolution of um, a rules. We already know that the bars are opening tonight. Mid is it midnight? I think it were 11.59. This afternoon, I think they were hoping. Oh, it's this afternoon. So some people might be um, listening to this podcast. You can head over to the old Bailey afterwards, Dean. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, well, avoid the hangover. That's all I say. But the other thing is that we know that on Monday at Cabinet, we'll be reviewing the rules and we'll be probably um, looking to loosen some of those rules. And the gathering size restrictions, the, the present cap of 10 uh, is under review for, for Monday and, and other ones. But the, the PM sort of signalled that there'll be an iterative process and there'll be other evolutions and loosenings once the um, the data is obtained of the risk and the, and the practice of the country and so forth. Um, so I think that's really the, the striking thing about two is careful commingling or managed or regulated, but in a, in a loose and evolving way. And the interesting thing about those rules is it, just observing people the last few days is that in some ways people were very comfortable knowing what they could do and what they couldn't do under level four. Well, basically you couldn't do anything. So it was a pretty easy, easy thing. Level three, people were a bit uncertain, but basically got the point. I just wonder whether the lack of a proper word is really stopping people getting the point of what the, what stage two is in terms of what it actually means for people. And I think there's quite a lot of, one gets a sense there's a lot of confusion about what can be done and what can't be done. And the obvious big confusion of the week has been a, a dispute about whether the Prime Minister was right or whether uh, the police were right or whether uh, opposition MP were right or whether Bishop Tamaki was right about gatherings and religious services. And before you start, it's been interesting for me just watching different reactions from different, different parts of the religious community, some very accepting of the restrictions. Um, current restrictions. There was one Anglican priest in Auckland ordering shot glasses so that he could uh, minister communion um, in his shot glasses, which I thought was an, an, a very um, interesting response to the rules. But others are obviously very resistant. And there's an interesting play going on now between, which is not unfamiliar for those of us who watch the politics of other countries, of trying to set a government against a kind of religious freedom movement. But rather than being focused on that big issue, obviously it's focused on the particular wording of this of the level two orders. So do you just run us through, Dean, what the what the interpretive issue is and what the re resolution of that might be? Well, and, and Simeon Brown, the National Party MP, raised this with a um apparent expose to say, aha, uh, religious services have always, if you read the level two rules, are uh, 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 fall within the the definition or treatment of businesses and services, which has that 100-person uh, cap, rather than, a, as most people expected, it was a type of um, gathering and only permitted if it was a, 
um, a lower risk gathering, um, higher risk gatherings of, of 11 people more uh, were prohibited. And you know, reading through the rules, I think the only sensible interpretation is that the um, religious services and worship is a gathering. I've set out in some detail on my Twitter earlier in the week, so I'm w- working through all the different um, provisions, but I'm probably not going to bore you with the, the intricacies of a um, you know, laws one, two, three type analysis of the meaning of, of gathering. Suffice to say, um, I think that it's clear that when the rules talk about um, services or business and services, they're talking in, in, in a sort of a commercial sense in a different way to the, the religious sense that we talked of religious services. Um, there's a handful of indications in the in the rules that that point towards a very strongly, I think, uh, religious worship being a kind of gathering akin to the social and cultural activities, which are also treated as gatherings. And I mean, the interesting thing is. Religious service isn't marked out for special textual treatment, but as I say, I think all the structural and the, and the textual indications weigh in favour of it being a, a, a gathering, a, a falling within the category of a gathering and thus subject to the 10 or fewer person limit. What's interesting, I think, is that the police, I mean, the Prime Minister, when quizzed on this, pointed to some Crown Law advice, not setting uh, setting out, but saying that she'd got comfort from Crown Law that that religious uh, services were subject to the 10-person limit. Uh, I've seen floating around a a two-page police operational guidelines, which seem to take a a different view. And I think there's some water to go under the bridge on how that's resolved before probably Sunday. Uh, Because quite frankly, if that is the um, advice that's been tendered by the police, I'd respectfully disagree with that, because I think there's very strong indications um, the other way. Yeah, um, I think for just interrupting because I need to. Inter- I want to interrupt you um, it, with with my point, which is again, it gets back to this difficulty at this at this level of being able to explain to people exactly what the purpose is behind the restrictions, and it's it's a really odd purpose, it seems, from a from a number of perspectives. But the, what we know about the virus, what the Prime Minister is saying about the virus, what Dr. Bloomfield says about the virus, that spreads mostly through communities when it's communities that meet and the communities do the things that communities do, they hug or they have tea or they, they natter closely together or they, in this case, pray together. And it's a very strange thing to explain to people who think they're doing the most natural human thing in the world, praying together or worshipping together, that that somehow is exposing them to a particular added risk. Whereas clearly Dr Bloomfield and the Prime Minister on the page looking at the data from overseas, this is the kind of activity that actually spreads. And then you've got some crossovers. There's clearly bars, at least in Wellington, and I think parts of Auckland, you know, down Courtney Place, are a kind of community gathering. Um, certainly later on Friday night, it's all a bit of a, your phrase, a rolling mall of people, frankly. And at some point, the bars are providing a service, but at the other point, they're bringing a community together. And at some point during the evening, things cross over from, service provision to a community and I suppose that's what we what the drafters are really struggling with in the, in this work. Yeah and, and I think I read the, the rules with that very sophisticated rather than blunt purpose it's not just about regulating the size to, to prevent the spread or the transmission it's, it's about uh, trying to um, 
minimise the risky behaviour, and, and and that's why the mixed veggies um, rugby team, you know, can't do a full rugby training because, uh, well, there is a bit of cuddling going on a rival because we're a great big family, but because of that close in, in interaction, and and the PM and the Director General being very clear that in a religious worship, it's more than just sitting like a statue in a in rows and, and pews. It is a high risk area for that type of transmission. But, but then again, the, the religious People have argued, well, let's look at what's going to be happening at X bar down on Courtney Place tonight. You know, the man who was explaining his rules on National Radio this morning did say that they would definitely have a no snogging policy. It's just not, and Kim Hill immediately said, well, exactly how you enforce that, and he kind of chuckled. So there is obviously a problem with this virus in terms of it was easy to explain to people what to do at level four, a little bit harder at level three, but at this level, it is really difficult to explain the rationality behind some of the, not, not the rationale to stop the disease, but the choice of particular words or the sorts of gatherings that are permitted or not permitted. Can, the limits and, of what the law can really do, I think. And, and can I add something on the rule of law? Because I think it shows a different expression of the rule of law here, where we've got a very rule-based type uh, approach going on. And that's the idea that the rules are ind independent from the creator and the enforcer. The PM's framed uh, sort of the purpose and the, and the thinking behind the design of the rules. The police on the other side have taken a different interpretation of how the rules uh, might be applied and that might be subject to, to revision in, in terms of greater reflection. But the importance is that independence of the rules and it's the rules which rule rather than the, the, the wishes you know, in the background of, of the creator. But ultimately, if we can't articulate the reasons behind the distinctions the rules are making, that also has a problem for the rule of law because people quite rightly are saying, why are these people able to do whatever they're doing down Courtney Place and I can't go to my, my church? Absolutely, and that, and that goes to the sort of the, the extent to which rules uh, change behaviour and create social norms and things like that. Powerful rules are rational rules uh, and ones which have a high degree of social licence inconsistent just, just erodes that. And so moving from the bars in Courtney Place to the other end of town back to our part of town. Now uh, we're lucky enough to work just across the road from the High Court. Um, again, when Mr Barrow felt had his action seen and I were imagining we might do a live court report in the foyer of the High Court describing exciting action. Um, Dean, I haven't seen any real action on the borrowed our litigation this week. Have you been able to anything on the on the rumour mill? Um, still very much kicking down the road, so very little report. I understand the, an amended statement of claim has been filed um, as per the timetable I think that we talked about last week. The, the indications seem to be that it might be a fatter claim, so it might build in some extra layers of the, the Bill of Rights, um, picking up on some of the things that we've talked about here in terms of whether the Director General is acting under dictation uh, and problems, some of the implementation problems. But, but as we said last week, that creates a sort of very, very much a fatter and more, more richer um, challenge, but it also procedurally makes it, um, it requires more evidence uh, and more time. So I think the Crown's defence is not due till next Friday and, and, um, and another case management conference in early July. So we're watching that space. I hear a little bit of chatter about possible intervention to uh, other people coming into the claim, whether that's going to um, be allowed or going to rise, be allowed, we'll see. Um, I think also the other interesting thing, I'm hearing a little bit of chatter about the legality question being potentially being raised as a defence in criminal prosecutions. I think that's the one which is 
is going to be really hard. Well, it's going to be important because that's, as you said, where the rubber hits the road, where there are legal sanctions which have been um, uh, imposed on someone in, in the light of the earlier level three and four rules um, and, and their ability to collaterally challenge the legality of those orders. So mm -hmm. not, not much to report on that front on, on the courts. Um, I'm interesting, but, but the, and this I might want to jump in, I'm not sh sure, but one of the issues is just on that criminal charging thing, what they've actually been charged with these people, whether they've been charged with violations of the orders or whether they've been charged with associated miscellaneous offences um, and whether that will sort of muddy the waters in terms of the collateral challenge that you might be charged under the health act, you might also be charged with disorderly conduct or some other one of these, mis these very nebulous offences. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just jump in there quickly. I, I think there was a sentencing yesterday, for instance, of somebody who one of the charges was one of those um, failing to obey the, the order, but also some ancillary charges, I think, of, um, you know, vehicle offences and that. But I agree, Dean, it would be absolutely fascinating. And I think this is something that we've raised before, if there was some sort of a legality um, challenge, because as I think you led off with this morning, um, Jeff, it is where the rubber hits the road. If we have a considerable number of prosecutions and even people who have served sentence of, of imprisonment for these offences, um, that is really where, where it hits. And a criminal offence is not to be sneezed at at all, is it, in terms of it being, if you have a criminal conviction, you have a criminal conviction. And I think all the people on this podcast don't want to have criminal convictions. Lots of people out there don't want to have criminal convictions. Even if you're going to get a slap on the wrist in terms of the sentence, it's still a big deal that you have committed a criminal offence and you have to declare it for all sorts of purposes. We take it very seriously in our system. So I'll be interested to see how that all works out. Maybe we'll have some more next week and we can do some more thinking about that. Just just moving on along to, to Eddie, who is going to just talk about a bit of a triumph, I think, in terms of the um, select committee process. But just to round back on the, Eddie's very constant theme in these podcasts, that one of the really important parts of the rule of law is accountability and making sure that accountability mechanisms are working. We were very concerned, like lots of lawyers, and lots of just New Zealanders, about the speed through which Parliament moved last week in terms of enacting the new statute. That's been done. But there are some developments, Eddie, which actually everybody who's listening to this can participate in as well as us for Eddie. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's, um, you'll recall that we had a, I think, quite legitimate grumble last, last week about the speed at which the Public Health COVID-19 Bill Now Act went through Parliament, and there was no select committee process. Um, one of the things we suggested, and I think I closed with this last week, is that it would be great to have some post-enactment review, send it to a select committee to have a look at. Uh, and then I said I think I didn't think it was probably going to happen. Uh, within 24 hours of saying that, uh, it, in fact, it has happened. And, and David Parker has uh, the Attorney General, slightly odd that it came from the Attorney General, by the way, rather than the Minister of Health doing this, um, but the Attorney General has referred the Act to the Finance and Expenditure Committee for uh, an inquiry to report back to the House shortly before the Act is required to be reviewed because one of the safety mechanisms that did get into the bill is that it does need to be reviewed every 90 days. Um, so just before that, there will be a report back from the Finance and Expenditure Committee, hopefully suggesting some changes and tweaks uh, around the edges. I think. But we've all said that substantively we think 
in general, it's a, it's a pretty reasonable bill, but there are absolutely some things to be improved. Before we talk about perhaps just some of those points or what people might submit on, just in terms of this committee, which seems quite a weird committee, when I first heard about this, I thought this is a very, very strange committee. Not only is it a bit odd that the Attorney General has been running this bill, not that he's not that he's necessarily done a bad job, but it just seemed to me that amendments to the Public Health Act should come, or the Health Act should come from the Minister of Health, but that normally one would expect this to go to the Health Committee or perhaps go to the Justice Committee, which has sort of expertise in some of the math, some of the search matters, for example, or to go to the Epidemic Response Committee. And none of those options were taken. So why are we going to a committee which is normally about really just financial matters and which has a role in supervising the budget rather than supervising the police? My understanding is basically that it is a large committee which has representation from most parties on it. Well, I think with the possible exception of ACT, because poor David Seymour can't go and sit on every committee in Parliament, which he'd have to because he's the only ACT MP, it's seen as prestigious. Uh, the Labour Party is saying it will give up one of its seats to a Green representative so the Greens can be on there. Uh, it has a lot of senior MPs and a lot of lawyers on it to scrutinise these sort of things because maybe it's a health issue, but it's also a law enforcement issue, as you say. Uh, justice may have been a more logical choice, but it, it isn't seen as having the cachet or the expertise, slightly oddly, that uh, finance and expenditure does. And just on the technical side of things, it's quite a short period, though, right, in terms of submissions. So if people want to say something about this bill, they've got a relatively short time to actually write about it. Uh, yes. So... If you want to uh, make an oral submission, if you want to appear before the committee, uh, it's basically two weeks. They're due on Sunday, the 7th of June. If you want to only have your say in writing, uh, you have three weeks longer. That's due on Sunday, the 28th of June. Uh, and you can go to parliament.nz, the parliament website. Uh, very easy to follow the links there, and you can just fill in a web form. It's as simple as that. And... I've seen people make submissions on acts. You can simply say you support it. You think it should be repealed. Um, it's easy to have your say. Uh, and this is a really important thing. So I think that you should. And one of the effects of this committee, and I might be overly exaggerating this, is the big controversy in the bill now really is on the, is on the entry power or was on the entry power last week and continues this week. And one of the instructions is just not to review the actual statute, but as I read the instruction to the committee, it was to review the performance un under this Act. So not only is it going to be looking at what the Act says, which is what normally a select committee would do in terms of legislative review, but it's also going to get some evidence, one would imagine, from the police, exactly how they've used this search power. Did they, in fact, go on to Marae? What processes they really use when they were considering going on Marae? Um, or did they use the power at all? And there's I think there was some evidence that over the last weekend they didn't use the power at all. Um, and that Mr. Costa, the police commissioner, was requiring things to be referred to him before, in fact, it happened. And my understanding is um, that the police commissioner essentially said that if you want to use it, you have to call the commissioner's office first. And this is an operational thing rather than a legal thing. So that might not give people the level of, of certainty that they might like. Um, but also you can't understand enforcement and policing or administrative action more generally without looking at the operational 
way that things work rather than just what the law says. And so just putting on my sort of design hat here for a second, it's there are two things here. One is how you design a statute, what you can put in a statute, and secondly, how you can oper operationalise the statute and what the incentives that are set up for by the design of that, of that statute. So I'm sure there will be people who will submit that this is a draconian power, that it's wrong, that warrant the searches of people, people's houses or, and warrant the searches of Marae. But I think also useful, and I'm sure the police are doing this now, we very interested to find out what they actually did, how they used this power, because the account that, that the police commissioner gave was very similar to the one that Nessa gave last, last Thursday, that this really was an emergency power, that it was designed for situations where there was a high-risk gathering with high-risk, probably, individuals relating to COVID, that they needed to do something, that it was ridiculous, would be ridiculous to go and get a district court judge or another certifying officer to, to agree to a search. But it'll be interesting to see how this how this works out. Be interested to see this is another layer on top of it, something you can't put into a statute that a select committee will look into how you're using a power. But it seems to me a very real constraint from a Wellington perspective, of what might be doing, whether it's a real constraint in, in Parirua or in uh, South Auckland, where there are real concerns of um, where communities might be concerned about police powers. I don't know, but from a Wellington perspective, it seemed like a significant handbrake on the police using these powers. The second thing, Eddie, to talk about is we've seen a lot of documents coming out of the government in the last week or so um, about COVID-19 and the government's response. There's been some fantastic journalism, I thought, trying to set out exactly what happened in that really chaotic time in March when the government went from not doing very much at all, frankly, to shutting the country down in a period of days. But equally, as there always is, there's been some criticism of dumping, that people felt that somehow there was an information overload, um, particularly on Friday afternoon. Again, that comes back to your accountability thing. So should we be worried about the fact that it all came out on a Friday afternoon, that there's lots of documents, or is that missing the real story, Eddie? I think it's a, a yes but about being concerned, uh, it, not optimal. Um, most of the people running comms for government used to work in media. They know how media works. They know that the Friday document dump is a thing. It's been a thing for years and that it makes things difficult for media. Um, whether media can change the way it works um, to diffuse that is a, is a separate question. They knew that media would be annoyed and media were annoyed. And this was uh, accompanied by some unfortunate comms strategy that leaked out on that afternoon as well. Um, we can just dismiss is not a phrase that a government that is trying to look transparent would it's, ever want uh, yeah, to be said. Better than let them public. eat cake as a government slogan. <laughs> dismiss them and let them eat cake. I mean, we could combine. We or could give combine them cake. Are the you dismissing them? <laughs> yes, <laughs> cake or death. Um, so that is suboptimal. But the substance of what is released, I think, this isn't something that we should lose sight of as we complain about uh, the way that this was done. It gave us this fantastic picture of how government all the way up to cabinet responded in those first weeks of the COVID crisis. As Jeff mentioned, uh, I think the two that I saw were very good long pieces from Mark Dalda at Newsroom and Matt Nippet at the New Zealand Herald. Using that information that was in that document dump to tell a really amazing story. And what I think is important to note is in almost no comparable countries would journalists ever 
be given access to those documents in essentially real time. It would be a decade or sometimes I think 50 years before cabinet documents uh, in the archives are released. In New Zealand, the, the practice is very different. Cabinet papers have regularly been released in New Zealand for years uh, across governments of all political stripes. And this just doesn't happen overseas. You would not see it in Canada. You don't see it in Australia. You don't see it in the UK. In the UK, they're still trying to not release their modeling on, on COVID. This release of cabinet level documents really is extraordinary. Uh, and there are things about our official information regime that that absolutely need fixing. Uh, one of the things that was shunted before COVID, and I'm sure will be even more shunted now, is the, a potential review of the OIA. I think that still needs to happen. But we should, despite that, be aware of how extraordinary the openness at that level of cabinet decision-making is in New Zealand. And we've got a really good example here, even in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, like there are some redactions. There's some, some papers we don't have. Like famously, we still don't have the Crown Law legal advice. Um, that was resolved by the Speaker, I think, at the moment. I, um, the Speaker just simply refused um, both warring factions. On the one hand, he refused David Parker's attempt to send the question of whether the Simon Bridges lead committee could subpoena the document. But on the other hand, he said quite bluntly that no legal advice could be summoned by a select committee. And that just seemed to some of us may be a bit too absolute because in New Zealand, one of the features of the Official Information Act, of course, is that legal privilege is not an absolute ground. There are no absolute grounds in New Zealand Official Information Act. What there are are good grounds and then there are grounds that will normally be persuasive and privilege is one of those grounds, but there, there can be an overarching public interest. And so it might be useful in the future to have a privileges committee that actually sets out how select committees might go about assessing that balance um, because we had a talk, we talked about the importance of legal advice. Some of us are maybe a little bit more skeptical about what legal advice should always be not disclosed by the government, but it'd be great to have that resolved in the future, perhaps by the privileges committee or by standing orders committee in the future, because there does seem to be a bit of a gap in the procedure. But like Eddie, I was quite impressed by this. And when you read these documents, you read the stories, one's getting the sense we, I think, obviously, over the, in the future, we're going to be looking back and saying, what were people doing in, in January and February? Why weren't they doing more? Um, why weren't we passing a, this COVID statute in January? I've seen one person on an email correspondence I've seen said, why weren't we doing that? Well, because really none of us were as focused, perhaps, as we ought to have been on the fact that there was this pandemic coming. I think we work in a sector which maybe didn't, but wasn't as fat focused as it could have been either in terms of what does impress me about these documents is it's kind of like going to a hospital in New Zealand, casualty hospitals, we've been with our children that you can sit around for hours and hours, nice people will look after you a little bit and you get very frustrated because nothing's happening. But if there's a real emergency in that meeting room, suddenly in the emergency room, people come from everywhere, doctors and nurses and anaesthetists or whoever else turn up immediately to do the work and that's the impression you get from these documents is that yes maybe the government was a little bit slow like all governments were but once the shit hit the fan basically people turned up that's the impression i get from these documents and and this is something that someone who's been a critic of of the way that the new zealand public service uh, works over the past 20 years uh sir jeffrey palmer our colleague at the law school 
put out an op-ed praising the public service response to the rafters. And, and coming from Sir Geoffrey, I think that's really notable. But I think there's still going to be questions asked about the response and whether we could have done things better. And I think inevitably, and I think the Prime Minister even almost said this, is inevitably we're going to be heading into some kind of big scale inquiry um, because that's the way of New Zealand, that's the way of things in New Zealand. But the good thing is that we're probably better off than many other countries leading into this inquiry. We actually have quite a lot of information at the moment. So Dean, just going to finish off the committee because one of the starring roles over the last couple of months has been um, Simon Bridges in the Epidemic Response Committee. Um, that committee has been through several phases. Um, at one point, it was sort of must-watch lockdown TV, um, and it's not anymore. Partly because Parliament's come back, partly because people got on with their lives. People don't want to watch select committees for that long. But they were, I thought, great at the beginning. But what's happening with that committee now, Dean? Um, Mr Bridges is obviously concerned about some other, other stuff this morning, probably. And in fact, is not cheering this morning. We're recording on Thursday morning. But what's going to happen with that committee, Dean? This might actually be one for Eddie, but I can say that I may have got a little bit of hot water by reading the tea leaves on Twitter yesterday and and, and suggesting that the um, committee may have run its course because it seems to me that the the Labour um, Labour government's messages to ministers that now that the usual processes are returning, they, uh, the ministers um, um, should decline invitations to attend before the committee. Um, you know, we, we can debate whether whether where its time has come, but I think that the the reality when you look at the politics in the House uh, mean that it's it, it's days are numbered. But Eddie, do you just that as Jeff said it's been uh, in a way depressing and in a way reassuring a so a slow slide from sort of quite constructive forensic engagement with the government's COVID response uh, back to normal partisan bickering. Um, we saw some moderately silly stuff yesterday um, and the day before with the Treasury Secretary being ill and uh, the chair of the Epidemic Response Committee saying that it was uh, deeply unacceptable that she hadn't showed up and she was sick and she miraculously showed up literally one day later. So uh, trying to make mountains out of molehills, again, we're back in normal partisan uh, territory here and, and I think it's coming to the end of its useful life as a body dedicated to COVID. But one thing we might want to think about, looking at that good constructive stuff in the first few weeks of this, of whether a standing committee looking at general government accountability might be somewhere we want to go. Um, you might think there's a government and administration committee. Uh, you might think that could do it. But in fact, that is dedicated to the most boring possible sort of administrivia of government rather than the big questions of governance and administration. So something maybe to think about whether there's any value in not subject matter based scrutiny committee. Obviously, the Americans do this sometimes poorly, but one of the differences between our system, obviously, and the American system is that Congress often sees itself more as an oversight body than probably at the moment a legislation, legislative body. A lot of the focus in select committee work has been on, on their legislative focus. Um, that's probably when they get the biggest role. In fact, they spend quite a lot of their time doing oversight work. It's just often that's not particularly covered unless there is something particularly controversial going on. So for example, 
the way the New Zealand estimate hearings got very much covered last year because of the controversy over meetings at Astoria. But typically we don't tend to cover that stuff. Um, I'm not quite sure why. I think some of that's really important and maybe that might give some journalists a bit more of a taste um, for looking a bit more deeply at some of the performances of the, of the ministries. The other thing I'd just say is that I thought that one of the things that was interesting was the way in which officials were being treated by the committee over the course of the committee. The beginning, very much, there was a cooperative mode. At the end, not only was there some bickering between politicians, but there seemed to be some effort to bring in the public servants into that bickering, which I th think is a difficult, um, a difficult thing. Uh, I'd, I'd go further, Jeff. I don't, not just difficult, I think it's inappropriate to have that sort of badgering and trying to bring people into what should be disputes between politicians. Um, it, it's not good for the neutrality of the public service. So we're going to, as we promised, we'd do shorter. We actually haven't been that, sh that much shorter. Um, what we're going to do next week is rather than doing a roundup of everybody's, what we're going to talk about next week, what we are going to do next week is each of us, hopefully with some of the colleagues who have appeared with us over the last six weeks, we're going to come back and see what we think two months into COVID-19, what the legal response has been, what the big themes are, what the really important news has been and what we can learn for the future. But we'll focus on that stuff next time. I want to thank Nessa, Dean and Eddie once again for the great insights. And again, thank any of you who are still listening or watching to us after this period of time. Um, we find the stuff really interesting. We hope you guys are still finding it interesting. Lots to discuss, lots to learn about New Zealand government still from, from the COVID-19 response. So until next week, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from, from all of them. Talk to you then. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.